0: CHAPTER Fourteen, of Characters of Shakespeare's Plays by William Hazlitt. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Nemo and Eva Davis LEAR We wish that we could pass this play over and say nothing about it. All that we can say must fall short to the subject, or even of what we ourselves conceive of it. To attempt to give a description of the play itself or of its effect upon the mind is mere impertinence yet we must say something it is then the best of all shakespeare's plays for it is the one in which he was the most in earnest he was here fairly caught in the web of his own imagination the passion which he has taken as his subject is that which strikes its root deepest into the human heart of which the bond is the hardest to be unloosed and the cancelling and tearing to pieces of which gives the greatest revulsion to the frame this depth of nature this force of passion this tug and war of the elements of our being this firm faith in filial piety and the giddy anarchy and whirling tumult of the thoughts at finding this prop failing it the contrast between the fixed immovable basis of natural affection and the rapid irregular starts of imagination, suddenly wrenched from all its accustomed holds and resting places in the soul. This is what Shakespeare has given, and what nobody else but he could give. So we believe. The mind of Lear, staggering between the weight of attachment and the hurried movements of passion, is like a tall ship driven about by the winds, buffeted by the furious waves, but that still rides above the storm having its anchor fixed in the bottom of the sea. Or it is like the sharp rock, circled by the eddying whirlpool that foams and beats against it, or like the solid promontory, pushed from its basis by the force of an earthquake. The character of Lear itself is very finely conceived for the purpose. It is the only ground on which such a story could be built, with the greatest truth and effect. It is his rash haste his violent impetuosity his blindness to everything but the dictates of his passions or affections that produces all his misfortunes that aggravates his impatience of them that enforces our pity for him the part which cordelia bears in the scene is extremely beautiful the story is almost told in the first words she utters we see at once the precipice on which the poor old king stands from his own extravagant and credulous importunity the indiscreet simplicity of her love which to be sure has a little of her father's obstinacy in it and the hollowness of her sister's pretensions almost the first burst of that noble tide of passion which runs through the play is the remonstrance of kent to his royal master on the injustice of his sentence against his youngest daughter be kent unmannerly when lear is mad this manly plainness which draws down on him the displeasure of the unadvised king is worthy of the fidelity with which he adheres to his fallen fortunes the true character of the two eldest daughters regan and goneril they are so thoroughly hateful that we do not even like to repeat their names breaks out in their answer to cordelia who desires them to treat their father well prescribe us not our duties their hatred of advice being proportion to their determination to do wrong and to their hypocritical pretensions to do right their deliberate hypocrisy adds the last finishing to the odiousness of their characters it is the absence of this detestable quality that is the only relief in the character of edmund the bastard and that at times reconciles us to him We are not tempted to exaggerate the guilt of his conduct when he himself gives it up as a bad business and writes himself down plain villain. Nothing more can be said about it. His religious honesty in this respect is admirable. One speech of his is worth a million. His father, Gloucester, whom he has just deluded with a forged story of his brother Edgar's designs against his life, accounts for his unnatural behavior and the strange depravity of the times, from the late eclipses in the sun and the moon. Edmund, who is in the secret, says when he is gone, This is the excellent floppery of the world, that when we are sick in fortune, often the surfites of our own behavior, we make guilty of our disasters the sun, the moon, and stars, as if we were villains on necessity, fools by heavenly compulsion, knaves, thieves, and treacherous, by spherical predominance drunkards liars and adulterers by an enforced obedience of planetary influence and all that we are evil in by a divine thrusting on an admirable evasion of whoremaster man to lay his goatish disposition on the charge of a star my father compounded my mother under the dragon's tail and my nativity was under ursa major so that it follows I am rough and lecherous i should have been what i am had the maidenliest star in the firmament twinkled on my bastardizing the whole character its careless light-hearted villainy contrasted with the sullen rancorous malignity of regan and goneril its connection with the conduct of the underplot in which gloucester's persecution of one of his sons and the ingratitude of another form a counterpart to the mistakes and misfortunes of lear his double amour with two sisters and the share which he has in bringing about the fatal catastrophe are all managed with an uncommon degree of skill and power it has been said and we think justly that the third act of othello and the three first acts of lear are shakespeare's great masterpieces in the logic of passion that they contain the highest examples not only of the force of individual passion, but of its dramatic vicissitudes and striking effects arising from the different circumstances and characters of the person speaking. We see the ebb and flow of the feeling, its pauses and feverish starts, its impatience of opposition, its accumulating force when it has time to recollect itself, the manner in which it avails itself of every passing word or gesture, its haste to repel insinuation, the alternate contraction and dilation of the soul and all the dazzling fence of controversy in this mortal combat with poisoned weapons aimed at the heart where each wound is fatal we have seen in othello how the unsuspecting frankness and impetuous passions of the moor are played upon and exasperated by the artful dexterity of iago in the present play that which aggravates the sense of sympathy in the reader and of uncontrollable anguish in the swollen-hearted leer is the petrifying indifference the cold calculating obdurate selfishness of his daughters his keen passions seem wedded on their stony hearts the contrast would be too painful the shock too great but for the intervention of the fool whose well-timed levity comes in to break the continuity of feeling when it can no longer be borne and to bring into play again the fibres of the heart just as they are growing rigid from overstrained excitement the imagination is glad to take refuge in the half-comic half-serious comments of the fool just as the mind under the extreme anguish of a surgical operation vents itself in sallies of wit the character was also a grotesque ornament of the barbarous times in which alone the tragic groundwork of the story could be laid In another point of view, it is indispensable, inasmuch as while it is a diversion to the too great intensity of our disgust, it carries the pathos to the highest pitch of which it is capable, by showing the pitiable weakness of the old king's conduct and its irretrievable consequences in the most familiar point of view. Lear may well beat at the gate which led his folly in, after, as the fool says, he has made his daughters his mothers. The character is dropped in the third act to make room for the entrance of Edgar as Mad Tom, which well accords with the increasing bustle and wildness of the incidents, and nothing can be more complete than the distinction between Lear's real and Edgar's assumed madness, while the resemblance in the cause of their distresses, from the severing of the nearest ties of natural affection, keeps up a unity of interest. Shakespeare's mastery over his subject if it was not art was owing to a knowledge of the connecting links of the passions and their effect upon the mind still more wonderful than any systematic adherence to rules and that anticipated and outdid all the efforts of the most refined art not inspired and rendered instinctive by genius one of the most perfect displays of dramatic power is the first interview between lear and his daughter after the designed affronts upon him which till one of his knights reminds him of them his sanguine temperament had led him to overlook he returns with his train from hunting and his usual impatience breaks out in his first words let me not stay a jot for dinner go get it ready he then encounters the faithful kent in disguise and retains him in his service and the first trial of his honest duty is to trip up the heels of the officious steward who makes so prominent and despicable a figure through the piece. On the entrance of Goneril, the following dialogue takes place. Lear How now, daughter, what makes that front on? Methinks you are too much of late in the frown. Fool Thou wast a pretty fellow, when thou hast no need to care for her frowning now thou art an o without a figure i am better than thou art now i am a fool thou art a nothing yes forsooth i will hold my tongue to goneril so your face bids me though you say nothing mum mum he that keeps nor crust nor crumb weary of all shall want some that's a sheel peas cod pointing to lear goneril
1: not only, sir, this your all-licensed fool, but other of your insolent retinue do hourly carp and quarrel, breaking forth in rank and not-to-be-endured riots. I had thought, by making this well known unto you, to have found a safe redress. But now grow fearful, by what yourself too late have spoken done, that you protect this course, and put it on by your allowance, which if you should, the fault would not scape censure, nor the redresses sleep. Which in the tender of a wholesome wheel might, in their working, do you that offence which else were shame that then necessity would call discreet proceeding.
0: Fool, for you trow, uncle, the hedge sparrow fed the cuckoo so long, that it had its head bit off by its young, so out went the candle and we were left darkling. Lear. Are you our daughter? Goneril.
1: Come, sir, I would you would make use of that good wisdom whereof I know you are fraught, and put away these dispositions, which of late transform you from what you rightly are.
0: Fool, may not an ass know when the cart draws the horse? Whoop, jug, I love thee. Lear, does any here know me? Why, this is not Lear. Does Lear walk thus? speak thus where are his eyes either his notion weakness or his discernings are lethargy ha waking tis not so who is it that can tell me who i am lear's shadow i would learn that for by the marks of sovereignty of knowledge and of reason i should be false persuaded i had daughters your name, fair gentlewoman. Goneril.
1: Come, sir, this admiration is much of the favour of other your new pranks. I do beseech you to understand my purposes aright. As you are old and reverend, you should be wise. Here you do keep a hundred knights and squires, men so disordered, so debauched, and bold, that this our court, infected with their manners, Shows like a riotous inn, Epicurism and lust make it more like a tavern or a brothel than a graced palace. The shame itself to speak for instant remedy, Be then desired by her that else will take the thing she begs, A little to disquantity your train, And the remainder that shall still depend, To be such men as may besort your age, And know themselves, and you. Lear Darkness and devils! Settle my horses,
0: call my train together. Degenerate bastard, I'll not trouble thee, yet have I left a daughter. Goneril
1: You strike my people, and your disordered rabble makes servants of their betters.
0: Enter Albany. Lear Woe, that too late repents! Oh, sir, are you come? is it your will speak sir prepare my horses albany ingratitude thou marble-hearted fiend more hideous when thou showest thee in a child than the sea-monster albany pray sir be patient lear detested kite thou liest to Goneril. my train are men of choice and rarest parts that all particulars of duty know and in the most exact regard support the worships of their name o oh, most small fault how ugly didst thou in cordelia show which like an engine wrenched my frame of nature from the fixed place Drew from my heart all love and added to the gall. O oh, lear, 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 beat at the gate that let thy folly in, striking his head, and thy dear judgment out. Go, go, my people. Albany, my lord, I am guiltless, as I am ignorant of what hath moved you lear it may be so my lord here nature here dear goddess here suspend thy purpose if thou didst intend to make this creature fruitful into her womb convey sterility dry up in her the organs of increase and from her derogate body never spring a Babe to honour her if she must teem, create her child of spleen that it may live to be a thwart, disnatured torment to her. Let it stamp wrinkles in her brow of youth with cadent tears, fret channels in her cheeks, turn all her mother's pains and benefits to laughter and contempt. That she may feel how sharper than a serpent's tooth it is to have a thankless child. Away, away! Exit. Albany. Now, gods that we adore, whereof comes this? Goneril.
1: Never afflict yourself to know the cause, but let his disposition have that scope that dotage gives it.
0: Re enter Lear. Lear what fifty of my followers at a clap within a fortnight, Albany, what's the matter, sir, Lear, I'll tell thee, life and death, I am ashamed that thou hast power to shake my manhood, thus, Pagonero, that these hot tears which break from me perforce should make thee worth them blast and fox upon thee the untented woundings of a father's curse pierce every sense about thee old fond eyes between this cause again i'll pluck you out and cast you with the waters that you lose to temper clay ha huh. is it come to this let it be so Yet have I left a daughter who, I am sure, is kind and comfortable. When she shall hear this of thee, with her nails she'll flay thy wolfish visage. Thou shalt find that I'll resume the shape which thou dost think I have cast off for ever. Exit Lear, Kent, and attendants. This is certainly fine no wonder that lear says after it oh let me be not mad not mad sweet heavens feeling its effects by anticipation but fine as is this burst of rage and indignation at the first blow aimed at his hopes and expectations it is nothing near so fine as what follows from his double disappointment and his lingering efforts to see which of them he shall lean upon for support and find comfort in when both his daughters Turn against his age and weakness. It is with some difficulty that Lear gets to speak with his daughter Regan and her husband at Gloucester's castle. In concert with Goneril, they have left their own home on purpose to avoid him. His apprehensions are fast alarmed by this circumstance, and when Gloucester, whose guest they are, urges the fiery temper of the Duke of Cornwall as an excuse for not importuning him a second time, Lear breaks out vengeance plague death confusion fiery what fiery quality why gloucester i'll speak with the duke of cornwall and his wife afterwards feeling perhaps not well himself he is inclined to admit their excuse from illness but then recollecting that they have set his messenger kent in the stocks all his suspicions are roused again and he insists on seeing them. Enter Cornwall, Regan, Gloucester, and servants. Lear. Good morrow to you both. Cornwall. Hail to your grace. Kent is set at liberty. Regan.
1: I am glad to see your highness.
0: Lear. Regan, I think you are i know what reason i have to think so if thou shouldst not be glad i would divorce me from thy mother's tomb suppler king and adulteress Oh, are you free to kent some other time for that beloved regan thy sister's naught o oh, regan she hath tied sharp-toothed unkindness like a vulture here points to his heart I can scarce speak to thee, thou'lt not believe of how depraved a quality. O oh, Regan,
1: Regan, I pray you, sir, take patience. I have hope you less know how to value her desert than she descants her duty.
0: Lear, say, how is that? Regan,
1: I cannot think my sister in the least would fail her obligation. If, sir, perchance, she has restrained the riots of your followers, tis on such ground and to such wholesome end as clears her from all blame.
0: Lear. My curses on her. Regan.
1: O, oh, sir, you are old. Nature in you stands on the very verge of her confine. You should be ruled and led by some discretion that discerns your state better than you yourself therefore i pray you that to our sister you do make return say you have wronged her sir
0: lear ask her forgiveness do you but mark how this becomes the use dear daughter i confess that i am old age is unnecessary on my knees i beg that you'll vouchsafe me raiment bed and food regan
1: good sir no more these are unsightly tricks return you to my sister lear never regan she
0: hath abated me of half my train looked blank upon me struck me with her tongue most serpent-like upon the very heart all the stored vengeances of heaven fall on her ungrateful top Strike her young bones, you taking airs with lameness, Cornwall, fie, sir fie, Lear, you nimble lightnings, dart your blinding flames into her scornful eyes, infect her beauty, you fan sucked fogs, drawn by the powerful sun to fall and blast her pride. REGAN.
1: O oh, the blest gods! So will you wish on me when the rash mood is on.
0: LEAR. No, Regan, thou shalt never have my curse. Thy tender, hefted nature shall not give thee o'er to harshness. Her eyes are fierce, but thine do comfort to not burn. Tis not in thee to grudge my pleasures, to cut off my train. To bandy hasty words, to scant my sizes, and, in conclusion, to oppose the bolt against my coming in. Thou better knowest the offices of nature, bond of childhood, effects of courtesy, dues of gratitude. Thy half of the kingdom thou hast not forgot, wherein I thee endowed. Regan. Good, sir, to the purpose. Trumpets within. Lear, who put my man in the stocks? Cornwall, what trumpet's that? Enter steward. Regan,
1: I know it, my sisters. This approves her letter that she would soon be here. Is your lady come?
0: Lear, this is a slave whose easy borrowed pride dwells in the fickle grace of her he follows. Out varlet, from my sight, Cornwall, what means your Grace, Lear, who stalked my servant, Regan? I have good hope thou didst not know, Aunt, who comes here, oh heavens, enter, Goneril, if you do love old men, if your sweet sway allow obedience if yourselves are old make it your cause send down and take my part art not ashamed to look upon this beard to goneril o regan
1: wilt thou take her by the hand goneril why not by the hand sir how have i offended all's not offence that indiscretion finds and dotage terms so
0: Lear, Oh Sides, you are too tough. Will you yet hold? How came my man in the stocks? Cornwall, I set him there, sir, but his own disorders deserved much less advancement. Lear, You, did you? Regan,
1: I pray you, father being weak, seem so. If, till the expiration of your month, you will return and sojourn with my sister, dismissing half your train, come then to me. I am now from home, and out of that provision which shall be needful for your entertainment.
0: Lear. Return to her? And fifty men dismissed? No. Rather I abjure all roofs. And choose to be a comrade with a wolf and owl, to wait against the animity of the air, necessity sharp pinch. Return with her. Why, the hot-blooded France, that dowerless took our youngest born. I could as well be brought to knee his throne, and squire like pension, beg to keep base life afoot. Return with her persuade me rather to be slave and sumpter to this detested groom looking on the steward goneril
1: at your choice sir
0: lear now i pray thee daughter do not make me mad i will not trouble thee my child farewell we'll no more meet no more see one another but yet thou art my flesh my blood my daughter or rather a disease that's in my flesh which i must needs call mine thou art a bile a plague sore an embossed carbuncle in my corrupted blood but i'll not chide thee let shame come when it will i do not call it did not bid the thunder bear shoot nor tell tales of thee to high judging jove Mend when thou canst. Be better at thy leisure. I can be patient. I can stay with Regan. I and my hundred knights. Regan.
1: Uh, Not altogether so, sir. I looked not for you yet, nor am provided for your fit welcome. Give ear, sir, to my sister. For those that mingle reason with your passion must be content to think you old, and so. But she knows what she does.
0: Lear. IS THIS WELL
1: SPOKEN NOW? REGAN. I dare vouch it, sir. What, fifty followers? Is it not well? What should you need of more? Yea, or so many? Sit that both charge and danger speak against so great a number. How in one house should many people under two commands hold amity? Tis hard, almost impossible. GONERO. Why might you not, my lord, receive attendance from those that she calls servants, or from mine? Regan. Why not, my lord? If then they chanced to slack you, we would control them. If you will come to me, for now I spy a danger, I entreat you to bring but five and twenty. To no more will I give place or notice. Lear. Uh, I gave you all. Regan and in good time you gave it." Lear "'Made you my guardians,
0: my depositaries, but kept a reservation to be followed with such a number. What, must I come to you with five-and-twenty? Regan, said you so?" Regan
1: "'And speak it again, my lord. No more with me." Lear "'Those wicked creatures yet do look well
0: favoured when others are more wicked not being the worst stands in some rank of praise i'll go with thee to goneril thy fifty yet doth double five-and-twenty
1: and thou art twice her love goneril hear me my lord what needs you five-and-twenty ten or five to follow in a house where twice so many have a command to tend you regan what need one
0: lear oh reason not the need our basest beggars are in the poorest things superfluous allow not nature more than nature needs man's life is cheap as beast thou art a lady if only to go warm were gorgeous why nature needs not what thou gorgeous wear'st which scarcely keeps thee warm but for true need you heavens give me that patience which i need you see me here you gods a poor old man as full of grief as age wretched in both if it be you that stir these daughters hearts against their father fool me not so much to bear it tamely touch me with noble anger oh let no woman's weapons water-drops stain my man's cheeks no you unnatural hags i will have such revenges on you both that all the world shall i will do such things what they are yet i know not but they shall be the terrors of the earth. You think I'll weep? No, I'll not weep. I have full cause of weeping, but this heart shall break into a hundred thousand flaws, or ere I'll weep. O fool, I shall go mad. Exit Lear, Gloucester, Kent, and Fool. If there is anything in any author, like this yearning of the heart, these throes of tenderness, this profound expression of all that can be thought and felt in the most heart-rending situations, we are glad of it, but it is in some author that we have not yet read. The scene in the storm, where he is exposed to all the fury of the elements, though grand and terrible, is not so fine, but the moralizing scenes with Mad Tom, Kent, and Gloucester, are upon a par with the former his exclamation in the supposed trial scene of his daughters see the little dogs and all tray blanche and sweetheart see they bark at me his issuing his orders let them anatomize regan see what breeds about her heart and his reflection when he sees the misery of edgar nothing but his unkind daughters could have brought him to this are in a style of pathos where the extremest resources of the imagination are called in to lay open the deepest movements of the heart which was peculiar to shakespeare and the same and spirit is his interrupting the fool who asks whether a madman be a gentleman or a yeoman by answering a king a king the indirect part that gloucester takes in these scenes where his generosity leads him to relieve lear and resent the cruelty of his daughters at the very time that he is himself instigated to seek the life of his son and suffering under the sting of his supposed ingratitude is a striking accompaniment to the situation of lear indeed the manner in which the threads of the story are woven together is almost as wonderful in the way of art as the carrying on the tide of passion still varying and unimpaired is on the score of nature. Among the remarkable instances of this kind are Edgar's meeting with his old blind father, the deception he practises upon him when he pretends to lead him to the top of Dover Cliff. Come on, sir, here's the place. To prevent his ending his life and miseries together. His encounter with a perfidious steward whom he kills, and his finding the letter from Goneril to his brother upon him, which leads to the final catastrophe and brings the wheel of justice full circle home to the guilty parties the bustle and rapid succession of events in the last scene is surprising but the meeting between lear and cordelia is by far the most affecting part of them it has all the wildness of poetry and all the heartfelt truth of nature the previous account of her reception of the news of his unkind treatment her involuntary reproaches to her sisters shame lady shame lears backwardness to see his daughter the picture of the desolate state to which he is reduced alack tis he why he was met even now as mad as the vexed sea singing aloud only prepare the way for and heighten our expectation of what follows and assuredly this expectation is not disappointed when through the tender care of Cordelia he revives and recollects her. Cordelia
1: How does my well, lord? How fares your majesty?
0: Lear You do me wrong to take me out of the grave. Thou art a soul in bliss, but I am bound upon a wheel of fire that mine own tears do scald like molten lead. Cordelia
1: Sir, do you know me?
0: Lear. You are a spirit, I know. When did you die? Cordelia.
1: Still, still, far wide.
0: Physician. He's scarce awake. Let him alone a while. Lear. Where have I been? Where am I? Fair daylight? I am mightily abused. I should even die with pity to see another thus. I know not what to say. I will not swear these are my hands. Let's see. I feel this pinprick. Would I were assured of my condition? Cordelia.
1: Oh, look upon me, sir, and hold your hands in benediction o'er me. No, sir, you must not kneel.
0: Lear pray do not mock me i am a very foolish fond old man fourscore and upward not an hour more nor less and to deal plainly i fear i am not in my perfect mind methinks i should know you and know this man yet i am doubtful for i am mainly ignorant of what place this is and all the skill i have remembers not these garments nor i know not where i did lodge last night do not laugh at me for as i am a man i think this lady to be my child cordelia cordelia
1: and so i am i am
0: almost equal to this an awful beauty is their consolation of each other when after the triumph of their enemies they are led to prison cordelia
1: we are not the first Who with best meaning Have incurred the worst For thee, Oppressed king, am I cast down Myself could I will outfrown False fortune's frown? Shall we not see these daughters And these sisters?
0: Lear No 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 Come, let's away to prison we two alone will sing like birds in the cage when thou dost ask me blessing i'll kneel down and ask of thee forgiveness so we'll live and pray and sing and tell old tales and laugh at gilded butterflies and hear poor rogues talk of court news and we'll talk with them too who loses and who wins who's in who's out and take upon us the mystery of things, as if we were god's spies, and will wear out in a walled prison packs and sacks of great ones that ebb and flow by the moon. Edmund Take them away. Lear Upon such sacrifices my Cordelia, the gods themselves throw incense. The concluding events are sad, painfully sad, but their pathos is extreme. The oppression of the feelings is relieved by the very interest we take in the misfortunes of others, and by the reflections to which they give birth. Cordelia is hanged in prison by the orders of the bastard Edmund, which are known too late to be countermanded, and Lear dies broken-hearted, lamenting over her. LEAR and my poor fool is hanged. No, no, no life. Why should a dog, a horse, a rat have life? Thou no breath at all. Oh, thou wilt come no more. Never, 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 never. Pray you, undo this button thank you sir he dies and indeed we feel the truth of what kent says on the occasion vex not his ghost oh let him pass he hates him that would upon the rack of the rough world stretch him out longer yet a happy ending has been contrived for this play which is approved of by dr johnson and condemned by schlegel a better authority than either on any subject in which poetry and feeling are concerned, has given it in favor of Shakespeare, and some remarks on the acting of Lear, with which we shall conclude this account. The Lear of Shakespeare cannot be acted. The contemptible machinery with which they mimic the storm, which he goes out in, is not more inadequate to represent the horrors of the real elements than any actor can be to represent Lear. The greatness of Lear is not in corporal dimension, but in intellectual. The explosion of his passions are terrible as a volcano, they are storms turning up and disclosing to the bottom that rich sea, his mind, with all its vast riches. It is his mind which is laid bare. This case of flesh and blood seems too insignificant to be thought on, even as he himself neglects it. On the stage, we see nothing but corporal infirmities and weaknesses the impotence of rage while we read it we see not lear but we are lear we are in his mind we are sustained by a grandeur which baffles the malice of daughters and storms and the aberrations of his reason we discover a mighty irregular power of reasoning emethodized from the ordinary purposes of life but exerting its powers as the wind blows where it listeth at will on the corruptions and abuses of mankind what have looks or tones to do with the sublime identification of his age with that of the heavens themselves when in his reproaches to them for conniving at the injustice of his children he reminds them that they themselves are old what gesture shall we appropriate to this what has the voice or the eye to do with such things but the play is beyond all art as the tamperings with it show it is too hard and stony it must have love scenes and a happy ending it is not enough that cordelia is a daughter she must shine as a lover too tate has put his hook in the nostrils of his leviathan for garrick and his followers the showman of the scene to draw it out more easily a happy ending as if the living martyrdom that lear had gone through the flaying of his feelings alive did not make a fair dismissal from the stage of life the only decorous thing for him if he is to live and be happy after if he could sustain this world's burden after why all this putter and preparation why torment us with all this unnecessary sympathy as if the childish pleasure of getting his gilt robes and sceptre again could tempt him to act over again his misused station as if at his years and with his experience anything was left but to die footnote see an article called "Theatrialia" in the second volume of the reflector by charles lamb four things have struck us in reading lear one that poetry is an interesting study for this reason that it relates to whatever is most interesting in human life. Whoever, therefore, has a contempt for poetry, has a contempt for himself and humanity. 2. That the language of poetry is superior to the language of painting, because the strongest of our recollections relate to feelings, not to faces. 3. That the greatest strength of genius is shown in describing the strongest passions, for the power of the imagination in works of invention must be in proportion to the force of the natural impressions which are the subject of them. 4. That the circumstance which balances the pleasure against the pain in tragedy is, that in proportion to the greatness of the evil, is our sense and desire of the opposite good excited that our sympathy with actual suffering is lost in the strong impulse given to our natural affections and carried away with a swelling tide of passion that gushes from and relieves the heart end of lear